Hi, good morning. My name is uh, Jason Wallace. I am a member of Advent, and I'm a, I'm a history professor at uh, Sanford University. Uh, I am not a scholar of Islam. Uh, so if you want to leave now, you're, you're welcome to. <laughs> if you get your ticket. Um, the, uh, I, 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 did, I do study Western religious thought, and I teach uh, survey classes on, uh, on these kind of questions, to mainly to freshmen and occasionally the upper division students. So that's my qualifications, I guess. Uh, if I have to show a card, that's, that's what I would present to you. Uh, so, uh, but, but also, I'm just a citizen in the 21st century in a free society, in a church, as a Christian, trying to make sense of the world around me. Um, I, I would say that's, I bring that to the table as well. Um, it's been a confusing 40 years. Um, and part of my interest in this subject is ironing out wrinkles that aren't easy to iron out. So I hope you're with me on that, that to explore something like a world religion like Islam is to admit a kind of humility um, that that I think demands uh, kind of reflection that, that there's no uh, easy way to get at this that we live in a world where headlines and media reports come at us constantly we wake up in in a soup so to speak of, of uh, ideas about Islam uh, stories about Islam and how do we sort through it you know and so I think I bring that you know just that human factor of what what are we uh, living through so I hope that this week and the next couple weeks you'll join me with that if you if you're able to just uh, to, to try to get the facts down but also to try with humility to address the fact we're talking the fastest growing religion in the world Geographically, we're talking perhaps the most stable religion in the world, as I'll say more in this talk. Uh, it, is, it has been consistently stable geographically. And uh, a religion that's deeply rooted in monotheism. And as we'll see, uh, some this week, but mainly the next couple weeks, deeply familiar with Christian thought and Jewish thought as well. Uh, these aren't foreign uh, to the Islamic world or the Islamic mind. So we're not talking people that are wholly other. <laughs> we're talking about people, and we're talking about uh, connections, right? Um, that we can explore with confidence uh, as we enter into what I would call a, a, a foreign sort of uh, world a little bit, especially for those of us in the South and Birmingham. So uh, to begin, uh, I would like to talk a little bit historically this week about what we're looking at. I'd like to do historic. We're going to history this week. A little bit of theology this week. More theology next week, and then my third installment. I'd like to bring us up to the modern, contemporary issues that might be facing the church, and the state, and the and the globe in that regard. Uh, Islam. You can't. We cannot begin to talk about Islam without talking about geography. We have to think about a place. And the place we have to consider is the map I passed out, which is, uh, if you gotta kind of adjust to the shadings and, and such, but it's, it's Saudi Arabia is the place I'm talking about. Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, 
is the place I'm talking about. Um, before we can begin to understand what it is, we have to understand where it is. Because the, the geography uh, tells us something about how it came to grow the way it did. Okay, Arabia, uh, well, let me, I'm, I'm very visually um, uh, inept, so I, I don't, uh, we'll pretend like this is a map. But the, um, <laughs> if you can picture the map in your mind of just flattened out, you've got Europe on one side, you've got Asia on the other side, and then almost dead in the center, what do you have? You've got, you've got the Middle East, the middle, and you've got this giant desert peninsula sticking down called Arabia. And it bumps right up to the Holy Land. It bumps right up to uh, Palestine, Israel um, on one side. And it bumps right up to Iraq. And it bumps right up uh, to Iran. Uh, and it touches Africa almost. It, the point is, it, geographically, it is all, in the year 600, in the year 500, in the year 600, uh, this is the geographic center of the known world. And I think that's important to understand when we go try to understand a figure like Muhammad. Okay, the geography matters. It's dead in the center uh, between uh, Europe and Asia, and as such, it sees a lot of traffic. Okay, the Silk Road on one side, and then you have the Mediterranean on the other. So Arabia itself is an important bridge between two worlds, and it always has been. Asia, the East, and the West. Uh, Arabia also is a place that does not have, this is now, we're doing pre-Islam here. I'm going pre-Muhammad. I want us to understand that before we can get to the material. It, it matters. Before Muhammad, before Islam, Arabia is a very religious culture. It's a highly religious culture, but it's also a highly decentralized culture. There's no central government in Arabia. There's no Rome, okay? Uh, there's no Charlemagne, right? Uh, in the north, as in northern France, there's no London, so to speak. Uh, what you have are tribes. You have a number of tribes in pre the pre-Islamic world of Arabia, and these tribes are all polytheistic. They're polytheistic tribes. Now. They believe in a supreme God, an Allah, if you will, the word. But um, they tend to have their own sort of tribal deities or family deities, family totems, family icons. And it's a highly contentious culture. They fight all the time. Uh, they, uh, they jockey uh, for territory and position with regard to farming. Most importantly, they jockey these tribal units, these Vast extended families, highly patriarchal families. They jockey for a position with regard to trade routes. Because remember where they are, right? They're, they're dead in the center. So trade and commerce, that's the industry of pre-Islamic Arabia, okay? Um, that's how they make their money, and that's how these fam many of these families grow quite wealthy, including Muhammad's. All right. Another thing we need to know about Arabia is because it is a highly religious culture, they have religious industry. They have religious cities. Pre-Islamic Arabia, okay, before Muhammad, one of those religious cities is Mecca. Muhammad didn't found Mecca. 
the Muslims didn't found Mecca. Mecca was already there, right? Jesus didn't found Jerusalem. Jerusalem was already there, right? Um, I guess theologically you could push back on that. But the point is, uh, (laughs) the point is Mecca is there, and it's already a highly sort of um, energetic religious culture uh, there. Why? Well, it became a center of, of religious pilgrimage before Muhammad ever came on the scene. We don't know exactly why. We do know that in terms of material culture, and this is where a visual would help, and I promise I'm going to get up to date one day. Um, you may can picture this. In Mecca, there's this giant onyx black box called the Kaaba. Some of you may have seen an aerial shot of the pilgrimage uh, of the when they actually uh, perform the Hajj and they surround this giant black box. Um, it, it's called the Kaaba. It's an it's an onyx stone box. Its origins are unknown. Muhammad would later teach that it was built by Abraham. Okay, as the center of God's where he was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, right, and the drama with Ishmael. It's all kind of tied to this place through Islamic theology. Before Islamic theology, before the prophet, it was a religious pilgrim site. And these tribes, these families, would venture to Mecca and to the Kaaba, and certain rituals would be performed. And indeed, if we were in the giant onyx black spot, they would have the totems and the statues and the various representations of the deities uh, in there. Um, we're not complete. It's murky. It's in that murky area of pre-Islam that we're not sure why, but we do know it had religious significance and ritual was associated with it and religious tourism was associated, a pilgrimage was associated with it. We, we got all that. It becomes important for understanding uh, the Muslim faith momentarily. Okay, So where are we before Muhammad? We're in a tribal society in the desert, stuck between the east and the west, with vast caravanning and herding uh, tribes, making money, uh, bridging two worlds, bumped up against both Christianity, Judaism, and uh, eastern the, uh, sort of uh, theocracies, right? King gods and stuff. N- nicely situated, right? Um, and we're in a very religious culture. We're in a very patriarch- patriarchal culture. Um, as far as Christianity goes, before Muhammad, right? So if, if, if our date, which we're about to get into some dates here, but if our dates are around the turn of the 600s, that means from our calendar, Christianity has been moving and evolving for 600 years, right? So Christianity is very uh, populated now around Arabia, including Palestine. But in the south, Yemen, the country of Yemen, had a pretty strong Christian community. In Egypt, you had a very strong Christian community, a Coptic community. In the north, you had the, the beginnings of what became the Byzantine Empire, right? Uh, the great sort of um, recrudescence or, or refurbishing of the Roman Empire as a, as a Christian power. That's in the north. Arabia is stuck between that two, 
All right. And that probably is important as we try to understand who Muhammad was. I know it was important because it, it was very much a part of his education and development. All right. You can't we cannot talk about this religion we, any more than you can talk about Christianity without Christ. You cannot talk about Islam without Muhammad. Right. It is it, we are we are. We're pivotally pivotally centered on a person in this regard. Okay, Muhammad was born in the year 570. Okay, this is about 150 years after what we would call the last days of the Roman Empire. Depend, people debate this, but this is we're 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 looking at the, the slow decline of the West. The Western Empire, the slow rise of the Eastern Empire, and Muhammad's born in Mecca, in that zone, that time period. We know very little about his early life. His father, it appears, passed away before he was born. His mother seemed to have passed away or died um, around the age of six. He then went to his grandfather to live with his grandfather, who had made a good deal of money in caravanning. His grandfather dies, and he goes to live with his uncle. And it's under the tutelage of his uncle that he travels a great deal, and he receives a pretty good education, from what we can tell. He was uh, he he was uh, wealthy. He uh, ish. <laughs> uh, he married well, a woman about 15 years his senior, who came from a very powerful caravanning uh, family, trading family. And they had money. They had means, I should say. Um, and he he was educated and kind of known in Mecca as a as a wise man, as a smart guy, as somebody you'd go to for advice. He was. Uh, I'm going about as far as the record takes us, you know, in terms of what we can actually say with consistency and clarity about Muhammad's life, uh, because it, it does get fuzzy. Exactly what was happening in those early years. Where our story picks up, or where the story of Islam picks up, is when he's about, he's 40 years old. He's a middle-aged man. Muhammad had a, a reputation for going kind of off by himself and retreats, I guess is what we would call it, contemplative times, getting away from it all, thinking, meditating. Um, and in the year 610, Muhammad was up in the hills. He was up on a mountain, actually, called Mount Hira, H-I-R-A. And something quite extraordinary, according to Muhammad, happens. I would argue incredibly extraordinary. Um, and some of you may be familiar with this story. Muhammad had a religious experience on Mount Hira in 610 at 40 years old, where he was encountered by the angel Gabriel. This is the same Gabriel that we are familiar with through mainly two places in the Christian Bible. We only have a couple of angels that are actually named in Scripture. Gabriel's one of them. Daniel 8 and 9, you can look there. Daniel, a man, a mysterious man, comes to help Daniel interpret his dreams about Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and those guys. Remember? We have two instances there, and then we have, famously, 
the Annunciation to Mary. Remember in Luke 2, Luke 1 and 2, the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to Mary and lets her know that she's uh, her, her, her God-given mission to bring Christ uh, into the world. Those were our two scriptural references. This is the same angel that confronts Muhammad in the year 610 in a cave on Mount Hira. And we only have Muhammad's account. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this account. It's in the Quran. I brought my Quran like all good Christians do. <laughs> um, it's the first time in the history of my time going to church that I brought a Quran to church. But, but we're going to get to this more next week. But the account's in here. He goes home and tells his wife about this encounter. He is, according to witnesses, family, mainly family, they say this man is powerfully shaken. He's kind of a vegetable after this. He's, he's a wreck. Um, he, something extraordinary has happened, according to witnesses. Okay, And if, I think you can, if you'll bear with me, I, I, I prefer to describe this as it has been described as opposed to trying to make a normative judgment at this point. And then we can go back and talk through the theology of it or the best we can. So that's why I'm trying to build the narrative this way. How would it have been understood? What happened? Well, according to, to what he told his wife and his family, the angel Gabriel came to him and he said, uh, he commanded him to kurah, kurah, to recite or read, read, recite, say. And of course, that kurah sounds like the root word for what? That's the verb. Quran, the noun, the recitations or the readings of Muhammad. What did he command him? The, 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 the command was direct. Uh, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. That the, the first command from the angel Gabriel was to go preach this, to go teach this. Now, Muhammad's response was allegedly, I, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to recite. You know, I don't know what he said exactly, but it was some kind of argument back with the angel. At that point, the angel enveloped him and squeezed him. You know, maybe like when you were a kid, you know, your sister, brother, and squeezes you to you. He couldn't breathe and, and uh, overwhelmed him and commanded him and whispered, Kurah, Kurah. This was the first revelation in 6.10. There would be many more between 6.10 and his death in 6.32, which eventually are compiled into the, the recitations. More about this forthcoming. What is significant here? Well, a lot, obviously. But um, what's significant is this is the first and only private revelation of Muhammad. Every other revelation that makes up the Quran was public. He would go, according to witnesses, into a trance-like state. Uh, he would sweat. He would be discomfited in his being. Um, critics might say he looked possessed, right? Uh, friends might say he, he looked um, inspired. <laughs> you follow me? So other people actually did witness this, but the first revelation involving Gabriel uh, was, uh, was private. 
Now, what, do we, what just happens? This public man, Muhammad, in Mecca, a polytheistic world, uh, was just told there is one God and you are his spokesperson. Uh, I, you, you now are to go into Arabia, Mecca, Arabia, and proclaim this. He was very reticent to do it. His, it was his wife, some believe, and his family who convinced him to start it. He began to teach. Now, what do you think? How readily was this message received in the world I just described to you? Not readily at all. It was almost rejected out of hand. He was castigated. He was laughed at. Uh, as his revelations grew, he had more messages about uh, roles of the family, the, the social order, questions of justice. Uh, and the tribal polytheistic world of Arabia said, okay, you're costing us money and we need you to shut up. Uh, but he didn't. So the point being, he was a prophet rejected in Mecca. He was persecuted. There are accounts of having feces thrown at him and vegetables. And uh, he, he basically had to go into an underground movement in Mecca for some time. Over the course of between 610 and 622, the year 622, which is significant, uh, Islam, or the Muslims, the followers of Muhammad, were house churches in our vocabulary. Uh, they were underground movements, okay? And they were not popular. A couple of things happen. Uh, his wife and his uh, uncle die in, in the stretch of the next few years. In the year 620, uh, one of the great revelations and teachings of Islam is Muhammad was transported to Jerusalem in a vision where he was then escorted into heaven. It was a night journey that he... He ascended into heaven. Now, he does not ascend in the way, in any way as a messianic figure, but he was allowed as a prophet to go into see heaven. And according to the narrative, his ascension took place where the Temple Mount is today uh, in Jerusalem on the temple. All right. So that's uh, we'll we'll let that hang there for a minute. The real big event, though, that I want you to, to see uh, it, it comes in the year 622. The year 622 is uh, the beginning of the Islamic calendar. It's considered year one. Why? Because it was this year that Muhammad and the followers of Muhammad were invited by a northern city, a city called Yatrib or Medina, to leave Mecca to come to Medina to establish their religious community there as, uh, well, for several reasons, but the most important was Yatrib was in a, a mess. They were in an infighting mess, and then here was this guy with this reputation of being a good teacher, a deliberator, and they called, and these guys were uh, the, had a stable religious community. They invited them up there to become part of the Yatrib uh, world to try to balance things and stabilize things. This is very important. It is known as the Hijra in Islamic thought. It is celebrated. Uh, as the moment Islam begins as a global community, also known as the Ummah, the Ummah, okay? 
and it is it is year one. By the way, the the uh, the cave story and the enveloping story is actually has its name as well. It's called the Night of Power and Excellence. So just you know, there's a liturgical calendar that that that's followed here, the Night of Power and Excellence. So Muhammad goes to. Uh, 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 from Mecca to Medina, there's the, the hijra, the pilgrimage, the journey. He arrives, and here is where Islam really begins to flourish. The year 622 forward. It, it, it begins to flourish at an astounding rate. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about Medina is it had a large Jewish community. Remember, uh, Arabia is surrounded by religious expressions. Medina, Yatrib, is one of those places. And at first, uh, as, as Muhammad builds his following, he begins to synthesize the revelations with a kind of political theology. And the other significance of uh, Medina is it's here that the, the, the very seminal origins of the theocracy that we know of, of Islam uh, historically begins the kind of synthesis of religion and politics as an organizing principle. Well, what does that mean as he becomes a leader, not just of a religious, but a political community? It means what do we do with people who don't believe what we believe? The Jews. Well, at first things go well, and there's kind of terms set that how the Jews can live here. Eventually, it falls apart, and the Jews are expelled. So we have the first pattern in early Islam of both synthesis, but also um, the outpushing or the um, the exile from the community, you know, which is a long historical pattern with Islam of adaptation. Of, of, of uh, it's hot in here, Bill. Are you hot? Yeah. I don't know how to work that. I can't even get a PowerPoint. <laughs> so, I mean, the uh, <laughs> anyway, the the. Uh, so that's what's important. That's what we want to remember about that. From Medina, the Islamic community begins to flourish. From Medina, the Islamic community begins to flourish, but it comes immediately into collision with the Arabs in Mecca. They see it as a threat. They see it as a threat economically, and they see it as a threat religiously and politically. Okay? And so... From 622 into 630, in the year, around the year 630, you, what you see is this vast, almost a, a, a civil war breaks out in Arabia between the Meccan Arabs and the Medinan Muslims. You have two competing visions of religion and politics and social order. The polytheism, the tribes, the patriarchy, the theocracy, right? A couple of big battles take place. I won't, I'm not going to chase those, but there's, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, there are two, two or three really big battles between these cities. Eventually, what happens is the Muslims are able to... Well, I do need to say this. These, as these battles unfold in 624, the Battle of Badar is one. The Battle of the Trench is another, where Mecca tries to invade Medina. There's one instance where the Muslims try to push back and they lose. But as you can imagine, in the midst of this, the revelations tend toward a theology of jihad. That's important to note. Here we begin to see more and more about what do you do with infidels, unbelievers, those outside of the true faith. 
Okay? So that's why this battle history is, is interesting for our theology. Um, and it's not foreign. It's not foreign. Think of the book of Numbers. Uh, think of the book of Judges, right? Uh, the conquest, uh, certain Psalms that we do within Christian thought have references to a kind of battle theology, right? Uh, but it is foreign at the same time because Muhammad is directly linking, the, the revelations are being directly relinked to the rising power of Islam as the true way, the one way. And the Arabs are now outside of that, right? So uh, this culminates in 630 when Muhammad actually leads an army into Mecca and conquers Mecca in the year 630. Uh, this, is, this is a huge moment um, because what has just happened in the course of between 610 and 630, in the course of 20 years, a religious political movement has now brought the largest, two largest cities in Arabia uh, under its control and for all intents and purposes has united Arabia under a theocratic religious political vision. All that history of polytheism, all that history of um, tribalism and decentralization evaporated by the year 630. The Muslims control the peninsula of Arabia. Do you remember the onyx black box I told you about? He go, Muhammad goes into this. The, when they conquer Mecca, they go in, they get the, the idols, and they begin to smash them. Right? And they still enact this on, when they go on the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Right? They also adapt the Hajj the polytheistic Hajj to their means. The Hajj now becomes a way to honor Allah. It becomes one of the five pillars of Islam, the way. Okay? That makes sense? Okay. H A J J. Hajj. Well, the Hajj is the pilgrimage. So there, there are five theological principles that really confirm you as a Muslim. Okay? There are five. They're called the five pillars, right? The first is simply the profession of faith. The profession of faith is the first revelation. Allah is one, and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay? That's, that, it, it, that's your confession. The second uh, theological principle is prayer. And you've, the five times a day, uh, prayer. Uh, when I was in uh, grad school, uh, we had these evening courses, you know, five o'clock to seven o'clock or whatever. And uh, I, in one particular class, a Muslim student, and every day at sunset, he'd get up and leave, you know. And I, I, of course, I was just like, that's not fair. I have to stay. But he could, um, sometimes he'd come back, <laughs> sometimes he wouldn't. Um, but so the five times a day uh, uh, prayer. I have another story about that. I was on a uh, a flight one time from Rome to Sicily, and um, some North African um, uh, religious leaders, based on their garb, got on the flight, uh, and it was a it was a sort of a cheap British airline. And as we're as it was an evening flight, as we're cruising into um, uh, Palermo. Uh, all of a sudden this sort of kerfuffle breaks out in the center of the plane and people are turning and watching and trying to figure out what's going on and it's the uh, the, the airline attendants are with uh, these clerics and there's 
there's kind of a tense thing going on. And of course, this is five, six years ago. I mean, you know, we're at 35,000 feet. Nobody's happy at this moment, right? <laughs> Nobody's thinking this ends well in any way. And, uh, and people are getting uncomfortable. Some guys are unbuckling. I'm like, oh, you know, please, Lord, get me down the ground. And uh, what it, they were arguing about having uh, be able to use their prayer mats on the plane. That was the, the, the fight, the, the, the discussion. They wanted to be able to pray as the sun set. And actually what happened is they broke up. One went to the back, one went to the front. Everyone is just like, ah, you know, what's about to happen? And this, oh, okay, they're praying. It's all, it's all good, right? Welcome to the 21st century. All right, so um, 630, uh, Arabia is united under this political theocratic ideal. 632, the next important year, Muhammad dies. This is significant for our purposes. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I need to back up. Profession of faith, prayer, almsgiving, the fast of Ramadan, and the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Those five things are what Muslims do. or what I'm going to use a word that's not a word in Islam. Uh, they're kind of the sacramental order of Islam. To help us understand it, not that it is that, in the way, but to help. Those are your five things that you do, right? Muhammad dies. What happens? Well, who's going to take over this ummah, this new community of believers? That's the great dramatic question. There's a succession crisis almost immediately. One group of followers say. The next leader of the Ummah should be a blood relative of Muhammad. Dynastic, a dynastic sort of understanding of, of Islamic leadership. These, these people, this group, are known as Shia, Shiites. Okay? They believe that the community, the global community, should be governed by a, a blood relative of Muhammad. Well, the other group... Who are we talking about would be the other group? The Sunnis. That's right. The Sunnis argue, no, no, the leader can be elected or kind of, kind of I'm trying to think, you know, yeah, like a bishop would be elected. Or like, uh, like, like convocate, like uh, when they go into um, uh, the, the, the clavicle of electing the pope. Yeah, yeah that's right. So in, in, the, in the Sistine Chapel, that kind of thing. Right, so you're actually elective. These are the Sunnis. These are what the these are what the Sunnis believe. From the from the start of uh, from Muhammad's death forward, this is a division in Islamic life, and to this day, it is a division theologically in the Islamic world over who should lead the global community. The first four leaders were Sunni. The first four were Sunni, and they were known as caliphs. So if you read the paper tomorrow, you will see somewhere, if you read about the Middle East, something about a caliph, I promise. They were known as caliphs. Okay? No problems, except the Shi'i felt a little scorned. They had sort of lost that argument. This went fine and dandy until the fifth caliph came to power in 656. The fifth caliph was Muhammad's nephew, Ali. 
now we have an, an argument again. Because immediately the Shiites say, okay, the Shiites, we, we, we now finally have this community ordered right again. They declared the first four interlopers. They don't count. Now Islam starts over again in 656. Well, this went real well, and it ended immediately in a civil war that lasted from 656 to 661. Uh, the division is still present today, and it lends itself to the complexity when we try to understand Islam. Uh, the Shiite leaders are known as Iman, or Imams, Imams, Caliphs and Imams, a division present to this day. The Sunnis, the Sunnis end up winning this conflict with the Shiites by 662. And this is where your map can maybe be helpful again because this, it's the Sunni Muslims who begin what we know as the expansion or the conquest of Islam beyond Arabia, not the Shiites. They go into Palestine and confront the, the Byzantine Empire and win. And they made allowance for both Christians and Jews. You had to pay kind of a tax. They had these groups called the Dimmies that were formed to kind of oversee how politically they were going to be. They then spread through North Africa. By the 700s, they have gone into southern Spain. And by 720s, they have crossed the Pyrenees into France, where they were driven back into southern Spain. East, they make it all the way to India. All right. As they move, this, this empire is called the Umayyad dynasty. It's the first great Islamic dynasty. It lasts from 661 to 750. It, it, here's what's important. It's an Arabian dynasty. They're Arabs as they spread. As they go east, they encounter another big empire called the Persians. The Persians aren't Arabian. Okay. But to read the Quran, you have to read Arabic. And as Islam moves into Persia, uh, by 750, it has become the official religion of the east, east of the um, what we would call Iran today, up, up to bumping against Afghanistan. This is the second great Islamic empire emerges out of this. These are the Persian Muslims. They're called the Abbasids, if, if there's going to be a test, or the Abbasids. They last from 750 to 1258. And then, of course, the third great empire that emerges uh, are the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire. And they, they come around in the 1400s and are really last until World War I. Uh, as, as a global presence. So out of, uh, th this is a lot of history, but and I, I want to leave room for some questions, but I would also, if you don't mind, if I could just read something real quick to you um, to help close us out here with this historical narrative. Again, next week, a little more on the theology. This is from a, a, a scholar who uh, wrote a, a piece called Christianity Face-to-Face -face with Islam. By the year 750, a hundred years after, con after the conquest of Jerusalem by Islam, that's how quickly Jerusalem fell. It fell within a decade of Muhammad's death. At least 50% of the world's Christians 
50% found themselves under Muslim hegemony. In some regions, most notably North Africa, Christianity went into precipitous decline. At the time of the, North Africa, the home of Augustine, the home of Tertullian, the home of a flourishing Christian world. At the time of the Arab conquest, there were more than 300 bishops in the area of North Africa. But by the 10th century, by the 900s, Pope Benedict XII could not find three bishops to consecrate a new bishop. Today, there is no indigenous Christianity in the region, no communities of Christians whose history can be traced to antiquity. They're all missions at this point. Though originally conquered by the sword, most of the subject peoples eventually embraced the religion of their conquerors. By a gradual process of soft coercion, Islam was able to gain the loyalty and kindle the affections of those who were subjugated and make them part of the Muslim Ummah. This is no small accomplishment. So I will. I apologize for not leaving a lot of time. It's a lot of material. I'm happy to try to field a question. Yes, sir, Mark. Um, two, two quick things. Yeah. <clears throat> Very helpful, Jason. Thank you. Um, do the, the Shiites today have any identifiable blood relatives that they can identify? Yeah. In in yeah. So that's a great question. So no. Yeah, but you, you raise a great point. Um, there's a messianic tradition, sort of. Not in the way we understand it, but they, there's a, the one school of thought said the 12th Imam, who, a, a leader who emerged in the 11th century, I want to say, i got to check, was, uh, was actually taken up into heaven and will return. Okay. So they're waiting on him. Remember the Ayatollah Khomeini in the 70s and all the, the crisis of the hostages and... Uh, when he, there was a huge movement when he returned from Paris to uh, to, uh, to Arabia. No, to Iran. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. To Tehran. When he went from Paris to Tehran, this huge explosive messianic movement broke out, saying that this 12th Imam had come back, that he was the guy who was going to bring the next Islamic kingdom. And my follow-up question yeah. is. If we want to read on this, is there a yeah. good source of Yes, and I will have that for us next week. Why don't I get a small bibliography? Um, uh, Bernard Lewis is a guy I would point us to. Because you want, somebody, you want a synthesizer, right? I mean, we want somebody who can, let's get down, what is this? And so I will, I will make sure we have that. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I'm still focused on this, this black box or this black <laughs> yeah, box. The Kaaba. How big is it? And it's and big. What, so I will also bring pictures. <laughs> um, it's called the Kaaba, K-A apostrophe B-A. Kaaba okay. is how they pronounce it. It is pre-Muslim. It is um, onyx stone. It has a meteor built into it. Uh, it was believed to have come from the gods. So it's ancient. Uh, it has it has been Muslimized. It's been Islamicized from Muhammad forward. It is it has been uh, reclaimed in the name of Allah. And when you come when you go to Hajj, women are not allowed to this area, and the, the men all wear white. You will see and I love the aerial shots of this. You will see millions of little white ants <laughs> circling this thing, uh, as they believe the Quran commands them. Uh, and, and I mean, it's amazing. Well, you actually do hear stories of people being crushed to death. You do. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. When was the Quran put together? Yeah. I'm going to jump on more of that next week. But so it's compiled quickly after his death. Uh, it's he begins to have scribes while he's alive. It's actually finally compiled within ten years after his death. Stapled. Cain. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I guess you'll get into this next week. Just uh, as a teaser. At what point does Muhammad consciously look to Abraham as his sort of spiritual? Father? Yes, that I am. I'm going to bring some texts next week to look at, if anybody's able to come, where I actually want to show you how the tradition is appropriated into Islam. I actually want to show you what text it's from the beginning. Okay. From 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 jump, the Abrahamic tradition is seen as an Islamic tradition. Yes, sir. I'm, am I wrong assuming that the Sunni expansion was it both it was both and the Byzantines fought back pretty hard Constantinople the Eastern Christians Eastern Orthodox they fought hard they lost uh, we all know the story of the Crusades that come a couple centuries later a few centuries later as an attempt to reclaim from the Saracens is what they called them um, it was both and the astounding part to me is to really go from a man's death in 632 to the year 750. They conquered most of the known world and almost take Europe. And there's a lot of ink has been spilled. What is it about that success? What were they able to do politically, socially, geographically, theologically to stabilize and create a sense of place and purpose in these communities? That, the article I just read you, Christianity couldn't. Christianity did not. Christianity disappears. What happened? Uh, you know, most Christians, most Christians uh, in the time period we're looking at were in the East. They weren't in the West. And literally within 300 years of the collapse of Rome, they basically evaporated. Their communities have. Something worth thinking about.